Welcome, everyone. I've got seven words for you. Do you know what time it is? Well, do you? That's right. It's time for your Midweek Bible Study 2024 edition. Hi there. I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. It is great to be with you once again. Thanks for taking time to join us. Today is Wednesday, January 31st. We're continuing in the study of the book of Hebrews. Today we're covering Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 to the end of the chapter, which is only 14, 15, and 16, and then over into chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. And we're going to talk about what it means that Christ is our high priest. But before we do, let's have a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we celebrate you. We thank you. God, I'm just so grateful for you. Lord, I just thank you for all that have come to join today. Lord, we just want to sit at your feet and learn. So teach us from your word today in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen and amen. All right, turn in your Bible or Bible apps to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, and let us begin. Here's verse 14. It reads, So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. Our first question today is this. What does it mean that Jesus is our great high priest? And why should we hold firm to what we believe? To the Jewish Christian readers, the high priest had been their highest religious authority. The priesthood began with Aaron, Moses' brother. Only the high priest could intercede with God for the sins of the nation. But Jesus is a great high priest. He is the great high priest, better than all the high priests of Israel. And here's why. The high priests were humans who could offer sacrifices, but could do nothing to take away sin. Jesus gave his life and died for the final sacrifice of sin. The high priest could enter the most holy place only once a year to atone for the sins of the nation. Jesus has entered heaven and has unrestricted access to God the Father. The high priests were human and sinful themselves. Jesus intercedes between God and people as the sinless Son of God, human yet divine. The high priests were the highest religious authorities for the Jews. Jesus has more authority than the Jewish high priests because he is both God and man. And lastly, people could not approach God except through a high priest. When Jesus died, the veil that separated the most holy place and the temple was torn in two, indicating that Jesus' death had opened the way for sinful people to reach a holy God. Because of all that Christ has done and is doing for us, the writer says we are to hold firmly to what we believe. In other words, we're to cling to Christ and never stop trusting him. Beloved, allow Jesus to be your high priest. Only he can protect you from the inevitable judgment. Christ is a faithful high priest who represents all who trust in him. Next is verse 15. It says, This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. The question is, how does the writer say Jesus can relate to us as our high priest? Because Jesus, our high priest, was made like us, he experienced life completely. He grew tired, became hungry, and he faced normal human limitations. So Jesus truly understands our weaknesses, as it said in the verse. Not only that, but he also faced all of the same testings we do, yet did not sin. Jesus, in his humanity, felt the struggle and reality of temptation. Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11 describes a specific series of temptations from the devil. But Jesus probably faced temptation throughout his entire earthly life, just as we do. This verse also clarifies an extremely important point about the nature of sin, namely, that the experience of temptation is not the sin itself. In other words, Feeling the lure of sin is not the sin. The fact that Christ experienced the temptation to sin but was sinless is monumentally important for our understanding of the gospel. 
Too often we categorize certain sins, usually ones we personally are not prone to, as those by which only really bad people are even tempted to do. Rather than helping others to recognize the difference between temptation and action and guiding them to react in a godly way, we act as if being tempted is the sin. According to the Word of God, that's just not true. Christ was tempted, yet he was without sin. No matter how tempted a person feels, God always gives them a way to respond without violating his will. I would check out 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13 for more. Verse 16 is next. This will complete chapter 4. It says, So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Our question is, after encouraging Christians to complete the works God has given us in the previous verses, what is the writer reminding us of in this verse? Through his death on the cross, our great high priest Jesus opened access to God. Now people can approach God directly because of Jesus' sacrifice for sins. Because he gave his life to do this for us, let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. This verse is an open invitation to regard God as a great ally and a true friend. Yes, God occupies a throne, a seat of power and authority, but it's a throne of a gracious God. Grace, the word grace there, it means undeserved favor. Our ability to approach God does not come from any merit of our own, but depends entirely on him. He is our father who loves us as his children. At God's throne, we will not receive anger or be ignored. Instead, we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. That's what the verse says. God listens to our needs, beloved. No request is insignificant and no problem is too small. God promises to help us at just the right time, his time. This doesn't mean that God promises to solve every need at the moment we come to him. Nor does it mean that God will erase the natural consequences of any sin that was committed. It does mean, though, that God listens, cares, and will answer in his perfect way and in his perfect timing. Let's cross over now to Hebrews chapter 5, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 10. Verse 1, chapter 5 says, Every high priest is a man chosen to represent other people in their dealings with God. He presents their gifts to God and offers sacrifices for their sins. The question is, here the writer begins to tell about the role of the earthly high priest. What are some of the responsibilities of the priest mentioned here? Well, first of all, all the readers would have known that the high priest is a man chosen to represent other people in their dealings with God. A high priest had two primary jobs. One, representing God to the people by teaching the word of God. And two, representing the people of God in making atonement for their sins. The high priest served as a boss, if you will, over the other priests. So he was in charge of presenting the people's gifts to God and offering sacrifices for their sins. Every sin required a penalty and a sacrifice in order for the worshiper to receive forgiveness. No person could offer a sacrifice without the aid of a priest as a mediator. The idea of a mediator is central to the Bible, beloved. Humans subject to sin and by nature inclined to sin need mediation in order for them to establish any kind of a relationship with a holy God. Verse 2 is next. It reads, And he is able to deal gently with ignorant and wayward people because he himself is subject to the same weaknesses. The question is, what is another critical role of the priest as presented in this verse? The Jewish high priest was only a human, subject to the same weaknesses as other people, so says the verse. This verse pictures a high priest who is aware of his own sinfulness and mortality, and yet empathizes and deals gently with ignorant and wayward people. The priest's knowledge of the people is intense, it's personal, and it's empathetic. Verse 3 continues, it says, that is why he must offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as theirs. The question is, what does this verse say about the priest's accountability for his own sin as well as the people's sin? 
Without the high priest's mediation, the people would perish. He had to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as theirs. While holding an honorable and prestigious position as mediator between God and the people, the high priest still had to deal with his own sin. He wasn't exempt from the law because he was a priest. That's something all of us in ministry need to continue to remember today as well. Verse 4 continues, And no one can become a high priest simply because he wants such an honor. He must be called by God for this work, just as Aaron was. The question is, how does the writer say a person becomes a high priest? Look, this position, it was one of great honor. And as the verse says, just because a person might want it doesn't mean they're going to get it or doesn't mean they can have it. The writer says the person must be called by God for this work, just as Aaron was. Aaron was the brother to Moses, and he served as the first high priest of Israel. Leviticus 8 and 9 describe the ordination ceremony for Aaron and his sons. Their holiness came from God alone, not from the priestly role. Next up is verse 5. It says, That is why Christ did not honor himself by assuming he could become high priest. No, he was chosen by God, who said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Our question is, what does this verse say about how Jesus became the high priest? Christ didn't glorify himself, nor did he operate on personal ambition in order to become the high priest. Christ was chosen by God to be high priest. It's as simple as that. The writer again uses an Old Testament quote from Psalm 2, verse 7, which says, You are my son, today I have become your father. The context of Psalm 2 indicates that the role of the son is as king son. The Lord was the Davidic heir who was to rule the nations. That's in Psalm 2, verse 8. He was the father's mediator for those who believe in him. This was a public announcement of the Messiah to be mediator. His sufficiency to be high priest, it lies in his divine nature. It was the dignity of his sonship that gave value to him being the mediator. And then at the end of the verse, it says, Today I've become your father. This phrase refers to the father's installation or inauguration of the son's mediatorship followed by the resurrection. The resurrection demonstrated that the father divinely determined what happened. Next is verse 6. It says, and in another passage, God said to him, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The question is, what does it mean that Christ is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek? And what is the other passage the writer refers to in this verse? Although Christ fulfilled the requirements for becoming the perfect high priest, he did not have one significant requirement. He was not born into the tribe of Levi and had not descended from Aaron. Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. Only Levites could be priests in the Jewish system. But the book of Hebrews tells how Christ's priesthood was greater than the Aaronic priesthood by quoting Psalm 110 verse 4, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. These words coming from the inspired psalmist David predicted that the Messiah would come from a line of priests not traced back to Aaron. The priests in the line of Aaron were not priests forever, but Jesus, he is a priest forever. Verse 7 is next. It said, While Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with loud cries and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. And God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. The question is, how does the writer say Jesus fulfilled the role of high priest while on earth? High priests had to be human and thus be able to sympathize with those they represented, and they had to be called by God. Christ fulfilled both of these requirements. Jesus' humanity allowed him to sympathize with us. To show this, the writer reminded the readers that while Jesus was here on earth, he agonized with a loud cry and tears as he prepared to face death. 
Although Jesus cried out to God, asking to be delivered, he was prepared to suffer humiliation, separation from his father, and death in order to do God's will. It says he offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears. Jesus knew he had been sent to die, but in his humanity, he faced great fear and sorrow over what he knew would happen. In his humanity, he did not want to die, but he had submitted himself to the Father's will, and God heard his prayers. Jesus suffered extreme agony and death in submission to God, but his prayer was answered in that he was saved from the power of death. He overcame death through his resurrection. Verse 8 is next. Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. Our question is, what does this verse say about Jesus' divinity and humanity? In the kingdoms of an ancient regime, no prince ever suffered. The crown prince especially was pampered and prepared for kingship. But Jesus, even though he was God's son, learned obedience from the things he suffered. That's what our verse says. The bewildering lesson from this verse is that God himself, born of human parentage, actually learned something in the suffering he underwent. Was the all-knowing God in need of learning? No, I'm not saying that. But Jesus learned about the human condition. That knowledge brought more empathy than intelligence, more personal identification than measurable data. Like Jesus, believers often learn obedience through their suffering. This example of Christ encouraged the readers to remain firm and not drift away from the faith in times of suffering. Just as Christ was perfected through his suffering, so Christians will be too. Verse 9 is next. It says, in this way, God qualified him as a perfect high priest, and he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. The question here is, what qualified Jesus to be our high priest, and what effect did that have on those who would obey him? The author of our salvation was qualified as a perfect high priest through suffering. The word perfect here, this doesn't refer to Jesus' sinless state. Jesus was already perfect before he faced suffering. His perfection was put to the test, and it came out with flying colors. Because humans experience suffering and death, Christ became fully human and experienced these parts of humanity as well. By sharing our experience of suffering, Christ shared our human experience completely. Because Christ lived and died and rose again, he became, as the verse says, the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. These last words warned those who would turn away from Christ and turn back to an inferior system. Salvation comes only to those who obey as Christ obeyed, with complete submission to God and his will even in the face of suffering. And now our last verse for today, beloved, verse 10, chapter 5, verse 10. It says, And God designated him to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Our last question today. Here the writer goes back to a reference he made in verse 6. Why did he do that? What was his point? I believe the writer does this to highlight two important aspects of Jesus' ministry. All priests in Aaron's family line needed mediation for their own sins. All human priests died and were succeeded by others, but Jesus was fundamentally different. Jesus did not need mediation for personal moral flaws. Jesus died but rose again to die no more. No one succeeded him. He is priest forever. He's both human and divine, made perfect through suffering, able to understand our weaknesses. That's quite unlike the Aaronic priesthood, so the writer compares Christ's priesthood with the line of Melchizedek. I don't know about you, beloved, but just wow. That was amazing. These verses are classic, and some of them are timeless, as we've probably heard them many, many times in our lives. I'm just so glad we had a chance to study these verses today together. Let me recap this for us. First, Hebrews 4, verses 14 to 16 is one of the clearest expressions of Christianity's unique nature, and probably one of the most quoted sets of verses in the Bible. 
Jesus, the Son of God, has experienced all of our struggles, temptations, and sufferings, and yet he did so without giving in to sin. For this reason, we can look to him as our perfect example. We can rely on him as our perfect substitute. We can come to him as our only high priest, and we can trust him as our only source of help and healing. Knowing that Christ fully and personally understands what it means to be human gives us confidence when we bring him our failures and needs. Then Hebrews 5 verses 1 through 10 explain how Jesus fit the requirements of a high priest. Earlier verses showed that the Messiah promised by the Old Testament would be entirely human. That humanity allowed Christ to sympathize with our temptations and weaknesses. The writer of Hebrews pointed out that this also made Jesus qualified to be our ultimate high priest. Because of his humanity, his prayers, his sacrifice for sin, and his appointment by God, Jesus' status is far superior to any other figure. Well, beloved, that wraps it up for today. Next time, we'll study the second part of Hebrews, chapter 5, starting with verse 11 through the end of the chapter, and then carrying over into chapter 6, verse 20, and we'll talk about two key topics. Number one, a call to spiritual growth, and number two, God's promises bring hope. I hope you'll join us for that. Thanks again for being with us today. Hope you have a great rest of your day and week. We'll see you right back here again next time. Until then, God bless you. Go in peace. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church. Real people. A real God, real hope.